Thank you very much for downloading the Trap One podcast. I'm Mark. I'm Sai. And I'm Fraser. Welcome, gentlemen. So we've all been watching the brand new special edition of The Web of Fear. Uh, I think we all went for the Steelbook. Uh, you, you finally got yours in the end, Fraser? Eventually, yes. Um, I ordered the Steelbook. Um, I didn't get the Steelbook straight away. I got the standard special edition on Blu-ray. Um, but thankfully, the um, outlet that I bought it from, or the outlets are available, but I um, got a replacement, so I'm now in full possession of of the steelbook to add to the collection. Well, I've actually got both copies because I need to send one back, but I've, I've still got both at the minute. Hold on to it for ages. I'm going to. I'm going to. <laughs> I think you'd be a nice gesture if they'd let you keep it. It would have been. It would have been, but the um, you know, I've, I've been back and forward with them, and I'm, I'm, I'm getting nothing. <laughs> I'm getting nothing off them, so I'm I'm happy with what I've got though. When I got the season ten Blu-ray collection. No, sorry, I got the season, the re-release of the season 12 Blu-ray collection and all the discs had the season 10 graphics printed on them so they were all the uh, Ultron Pertwee and, and Pertwee stories about them. Uh, so I did a web, this was Amazon, I did a web chat with them and they said, just send it back and we'll give you a refund. I said, yeah, but this thing has sold out, like I'm not going to be able to replace it. So I just kept complaining and in the end they said, we'll just refund you and you can keep it. Um, so the content of the discs was correct. It was just the discs themselves. So then I got onto the BBC, and they sent me replacement discs. So oh, wow. it was uh, uh, ended up getting it for nothing in the end. So that was um, probably uh, bonus. better customer experience um, uh, from them. Yeah, and you've got a very rare edition of the Season 12 box set. <laughs> yes, I'm not sure I don't know how rare that is. Maybe I'll, I'll put it in the loft for... Uh, <laughs> For a few years and, uh, yeah, to put it towards my retirement or something. Yeah, I was going to say, that that's going to be a proper collector's edition, that one then, with uh, the wrong, wrong labels on. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't think it happened to all of them. So, uh, yeah, I'm not sure how many people were, were afflicted <laughs> by that. Um, but it's, uh, it's a beautiful still ray, Simon. I think it looks better in hand than it did on the pictures on the website, what do you think? Yeah, the pictures on the website, it looked a bit lacklustre compared to the others because they've all been, all these um, animation um, discs have all been beautiful and this one looked a bit mm, sort of nothingy really, but actually in in the hand, it looks really lovely. Yeah, I think I think sort of about in the photos, something about the proportions, it looked like there was a lot of sort of empty space around the outside and then the, with the TARDIS and the Yeti. They look quite small on it, but no, it, it looks absolutely fine, doesn't it? So it's um, although I really like the picture on the the standard Blu-ray release, um, yeah, uh, the second holding the uh, the little globe thing. Yeah, it's one of those times where I was almost tempted to go for the other edition, but then I thought, well, they won't match on the shelf, and I'm yeah. <laughs> doomed then, really, aren't I? So, got once you start your collection, you've got to keep going, and I'm not buying a second copy just no. for the cover. <laughs> that's exactly the same thoughts I had was, you know, I've got all the others on Steelbook. Um, you know, if I buy the standard edition, it's just going to stick out on the shelf. But in the end, I am quite happy with what I got. Um, the the Steelbook is, I think it was the colours for me. If you look on it on the website, it seems quite lighter. Um, mm. Sort of like a lighter shade of green for the most colours. So I think when you've actually got it in your hand, it's a bit darker. It's a bit more mysterious and i think obviously the was it the l frame that the cardboard it comes in with the um the splash across the front of the web i think that adds to it quite a bit as well 
Um, but then the bonus is, you know, you open the disc inside and you have a look and the, the artwork from the, the, the standard edition is on the discs. So Of course, yes. You, you, you get the menus up, it's there on the menus, so you're not really losing out in the end. So, um, oh, yeah, really happy with, with the Steelbook. So do you guys put your discs on the shelf with the little cardboard inlay in place? Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll lose them otherwise. That's the problem. They'll disappear somewhere in the black hole of stuff in this house. I do with my steel books because I, I don't want them to get scratched. But with the collection ones, I think they look much better if they're not sitting in the little sort of cardboard inlay tray. So my collections uh, just go on the shelf uh, au naturel. No, collections in the in the cardboard as well. Um, I stomach the cardboard to get ruined. It sounds silly, but that <laughs> <laughs> about the steel. Don't want the cardboard to get ruined. <laughs> I, mean, I don't. I don't throw the cardboard away. I can't. I can't bring myself to throw them away. I just got them. Um, they're um, they're just in a drawer. So I don't know what I'll ever do with them. This is the life of a fan. These are the big the big questions that you have to consider all the time. Yeah. Yep. It's, it's the biggest dilemma since where to put Lost in Time, isn't it? Yeah, and everyone will still be disagreeing about that. <laughs> Mine got moved because apparently I put it in the wrong place. So, <laughs> <laughs> When they're all out on collections, I mean, thus making the steelbooks redundant, I suppose, then uh, that'll no longer matter, will it? Well, they'll still look beautiful, and that's fine. Yeah. So, yeah, they'll still be be different to what you've got somewhere else so i think they're they're worth keeping definitely yeah definitely the thing i thought was is it a case of you know the steelbook didn't look quite as appealing to us as the standard edition because the steelbook art was of a lower quality or is it just because the standard edition art is of a much higher quality this time around you know it's, i think it's because the standard one was was of a much higher quality this time around the other ones have all been Quite a lot of them were sort of artwork, weren't they, I think, which was a little disappointing, particularly the, the sort of earliest ones. Yeah, I think that there's kind of more representative of the animation inside as opposed to the story, whereas mm. this one is obviously, you know, it's, it's a bespoke bit of art around the story itself. It's not sort of like representing the animation, whereas the others are more, more in keeping with that. Yeah. And it's eight years that we've been able to watch The Web of Fear again, which it still seems like a massive novelty. It still feels, to me, very new and fresh. Well, yes. Yeah. Um, after years of just having episode one, and that was it, and being yeah. desperate to see what happened afterwards, um, it's still a real thrill when you press play all and the next episode comes on and people are moving still and everything else. It's, yeah, it's, it's bizarre. And wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I totally remember, you know, that time of 2013 when everything was going off for the, you know, the 50th celebrations and, you know, we were getting the new Doctor at the end of the year, we were getting the special, um, we are getting two Doctors coming back together and then all of a sudden we're getting not one, but we're getting two stories coming back, uh, Web of Fear and Enemy of the World. So, yeah, how good, how exciting was that? Well, it really was. It, it was a midnight announcement, wasn't it? I remember it really well. And 
on Twitter, there had been a variety of Doctor Who based pun games through through the various through the many hours up to the midnight announcement that just kept everyone sort of and everyone was playing along. It was was really good. So it was Doctor Who sitcoms and all sorts that you had to create. And then suddenly at midnight you got this announcement because I did actually stay up for that one. Because I thought this is some this is actually something really big. And then the announcement came that it was all these episodes back. And to have two consecutive stories was just amazing, considering the last find before that had been two individual episodes from different seasons. It was, yeah, to have complete stories, well, almost complete stories as we know now, um, was, wow, yeah. It was amazing, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I, I was the same. I think it was a weeknight as well, but I, I stayed up to midnight. I think I watched maybe two episodes of enemy of the world because i had to get up for work the next day and i thought well i've obviously seen episode three i watched the first two and then just binged the rest the the following night but yeah it was um it was just such an exciting time wasn't it it was like nine episodes back at once they say it was the 50th year it just felt like such an amazing time anything was possible at that point because all the rumors had been swirling around enemy of the world whether fear and marco polo so it seemed like, uh, you know, maybe Marco Polo was just maybe taking a little bit longer to restore or there was... Uh, it's taken a bloody long time, hasn't it? <laughs> it just, at the time, so much excitement. Obviously, the Omni rumour was uh, was at its absolute peak as well, which even if you didn't believe it, you, you couldn't help but like have a little glimmer that, you know, that maybe it's true. <laughs> yeah, it's just that fault of, oh, well... Maybe next year I'll be watching the Myth Makers. I'll be watching the Savages and the Macro Terror. And oh god, and I wasn't. No. We'll get to see them all animated. The, the long, around, the long way around. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so obviously we probably all, all bought them on iTunes that night. Bought them on DVD like about four months later when they came out again. Um, it's I, I think with these things like I want to support them you know if I can afford it at the time um, especially at that time when it you know it seemed like maybe more episodes could have been returned you know if if I was playing my small part into making it economically viable for the BBC to, to sort of negotiate further returns or anything and same with the animations really you know even like buying the updated Power of the Daleks or, or this one with just the one animation, um, you know, added to the previous release. It just feels like you're hoping to fund future animations and, and get more stories out there. But um, I think you were saying, Fraser, there have been, been some rumblings from fans maybe that we're maybe getting a little bit fleeced by constantly re-releasing things. Yeah, it was it was something I kind of picked up on, on Twitter when um, obviously this box and the Evil of the Daleks was, was announced was... Oh, Web of Fear again. Well, this is like, is it something like the sixth time it's been released in one format or the other? Um, you know, VHS, audio, DVD, iTunes. It's been it's been out in a few times. And there was um, more than one account which was sort of questioning this of, you know, why you were re releasing this. And I can I can sort of see, see that kind of thinking, but, you know, the, the release that we had in 2013 was a very rushed release it was very um mm. you know we found the episodes one's missing have some tally snaps and there you go um i think the the set that we've got now is is much better for the wait 
to be honest. Um, you know, not even looking at the animation um, of the third episode, um, you know, as soon as you put it in and as soon as you play episode one, the, the, the picture quality on, on episode one is amazing. The sound quality is fantastic. Um, we've got more special features now, I think. Um, does someone count? There was about 10 commentaries now. Ten mm-hmm. different people adding to commentaries on about all the, the different episodes and all the different ways. You know, it's, it's a really, you know, worthwhile disc to have. You know, even if it was just the telly snaps again, telly snaps are in there. So if you want them, if you don't like the animation, which we'll talk about in a minute, you know, you've mm-hmm. still got the telly snaps. But everything else is is well worth the money in my my book. Absolutely, and I think we forget it took quite a lot of time didn't it for the enemy of the world to get a special edition and at the time everyone was saying well why isn't web getting a special edition um and obviously it's taken a bit longer for that to come out because the animations sort of took a bit of precedence um and obviously they had to wait to animate episode three so yeah it's Whatever you, I think, whatever you do for fans, they're not happy. <laughs> well, this is it, isn't it? This is it. There's mm-hmm. always going to be a certain element who are not happy with with what we've got, you know. And it's a bit like oh, appreciate appreciate what we have got, you know. It's you could have none of this. You could have we could still be sitting with just the one episode and having to animate the other five, but we're not. We've got all but one episode now, so um, treasure it. It's it's worth treasuring. Definitely, yeah. No, I completely agree with everything you said there. It's um, like you say there was it was a totally vanilla release that we got in twenty thirteen or twenty fourteen, I think when it when it came out. So yeah, it just deepens the experience having the uh, the commentaries, the behind the scenes documentary, the revelation that the Yeti's roar is not a flushing toilet slowed <laughs> down. Can you believe that the anorak? Lied to us all those years ago. Yeah, and Nicholas Courtney in the, in the narration of um, more than thirty years in the TARDIS because that was one of the facts they put in there as well. So yeah, it's just all these years that people have just taken. Someone must have made this fact up somewhere, and then it's just stuck. It's everywhere as well. It's in the complete history. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, about time where. There's, um, yeah, basically, wherever you read about Web of Fear, there's certain facts that always come up, isn't there? And it's like that the London Underground wanted to charge them £200 an hour, and then they wrote them a letter thinking that they actually had filmed there, sort of like guerrilla filming. There's the anecdote about um, Fraser Hines Hines and John Levine doing a uh, sort of a ballroom. uh, ballroom Oh, yeah, that one, yeah. That gets a bit. Um, that gets a bit um, debunked in the the making of as well, doesn't it? Because the the got different memories of how that happened, and sort of like John Levine sort of remembering them swanning around Covent Garden. And Fraser Hines like, no, that never happened. That well, no, didn't because Fraser Hines wasn't even at Covent Garden. So, <laughs> well, he says it was in the studio, doesn't it? That it happened. Yeah. Again, the complete history, and everywhere else says it happens at Covent Garden. It was his day off filming, but he just turned up to, <laughs> um, for a visit. But yeah, I suppose you know are they just reporting what uh, you know John Levine's um, relayed at various conventions. Exactly. As, yeah, you can't trust a Doctor Who actor. Wherever they get the chance, they're going to embellish their anecdotes and make it funnier and bigger than, than it actually was because 
they've been telling this story for 50 years or whatever now, haven't they? So they've got to, got to keep the action in there somewhere. So just make it a little bit bigger. Just exaggerate a little. Definitely. So it's, it's the same with the, the Nickers tale. Yeah. The version of the Nickers tale we'll get on the making of is, is slightly different than the one that you hear in various other, other parts, but it's, it's still a great tale. As my notes say, Nickers, it's always the Nicker story. <laughs> <laughs> So this, um, so this story. I mean, I think Delo is kind of always going to be linked, probably, with Enemy of the World now in the minds of the fans who are around when they were discovered together. But they also sort of bleed into each other as well, which I really like when stories cross over like that. When you get a cliffhanger at the end of one story for the next story, not just the next episode of the same story. Uh, and this one finishing off the um, the uh, the idea that Salamander could come back really it's it's pretty much stated not that he's dead he's not been killed by being sucked out into the vortex he's he's described as floating around in time and space and it's not going to be very nice for him um, have either of you two read the Paul Cornell comic called Heralds of Destruction no I've seen the panels where where he returns but I've not read the whole thing it's 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 great I absolutely love it it's a third Doctor unit story set after the three Doctors. So the precedent of the second Doctor turning up has already been set. So when the second Doctor apparently turns up again, um, you know, they let him into unit, they let him at the TARDIS and everything, but it's actually Salamander. Um, so it's, uh, it's, a, it's a really cool little story, that one. And I suppose it's indicative that the new production team is thinking about recurring characters a little bit more. You know, they, they've seeded that, I suppose, the idea that Salamander might, might return... They've brought um, the character Travers back, see from uh, from a Bob on the Ball snowman for this one, uh, and they've introduced Anne, who um, Anne Travers, who I think was originally intended to be the recurring character, but it turns out that uh, Colonel Lethbridge Stewart instead has that uh, has that honour, and um, luckily as well because. Um, you see, the, uh, the actor that plays Anne Travers <laughs> went to America to found her own theatre, so she wouldn't have been around to, uh, to reappear as often as Nicholas Courtney has. No, that's true. And we again, it's one of the other anecdotes, isn't it, from the story that, um, that the guy, David um, Camfield, um, Douglas Canfield even, wanted to play um, Lethbridge-Stewart, David Langton, who went on to be in Upstairs, Downstairs, and was brilliant, a wonderful actor, was supposed to play Colonel Lethbridge-Stewart originally, and it was supposed to be an older character, and when he turned it down or wasn't available or whatever, um, he just promoted Nicholas Courtney up yeah. and made him a younger character, and what a stroke of luck that was, otherwise he'd have played Captain Knight. Yep been killed off in episode four and we'd have said oh well he was a great guest character and that that was it that's it yeah he'd have joined the uh joined the ranks of people that it would have been great to see again like uh like duggan and uh characters like that mm -hmm. yeah absolutely i mean it's uh it's one of these things one of these bits of casting where you just can't imagine it being anything other now um you know you can't imagine anyone else being in the brig you can't imagine nick courtney being Captain Nate, um, you know uh, uh, Ralph Watson, who we've we've just lost, um, you know does a really good uh, job of, of playing Captain Nate. But you know Nick Courtney brings a certain higher level of officer to to the brig than um, than Ralph's bringing to, to Captain Nate, which is really good. 
Definitely. It's kind of, it's difficult to watch now and just appreciate it for the fact that he was originally intended to be a one-off character, isn't it? Because of the weight of history, um, sort of coming to it as a, as a fan now after all these years and knowing the, the importance and the resonance of that character. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because it's obviously played quite often that he could be the person that the intelligence is using. And obviously because you know the history of the character looking back, you're, you just discount him completely. So that element of the mystery is, is gone, but I, you can see why they wanted to bring him back from his performance in this it is so strong and the character is really um well-rounded already and what i like about him is his fatalistic streak that we don't ever see again that at the end of part four when he comes back when he's lost all his troops after the big battle and he's so defeated by it and so you can't fight them you can't do anything and it's so different to the brig that we know later on with, um, I wish we'd find a, an alien menace that wasn't immune to bullets and I'm just going to get on with this and do whatever I can. And that's really good. And I think, yeah, I, I love his performance in this story. And he's surprisingly accepting of the idea of the TARDIS and everything as well, isn't he? Yeah, uh, which, yeah. considering he, he becomes very disbelieving of it all. Yeah. I think it makes more sense... Um, in the context of all these these book adventures that he's had now, you know, there's the the Lethbridge Stewart adventure. I'm not sure what they're called. Is it Lethbridge Stewart Adventures? You know, the um, that range of books are a bit like the um, sort of target books, aren't they? Where he he has a a, lo- a lot of adventures and uh, encounters a lot of aliens and stuff from his young life, um, and then a, a few of them, I think, after the Web of Fear as well. So. He, he makes more sense of him not being that sceptical in this one of, of sort of otherworldly encounters and things like that. Have you, have you two read any of those? I've only I read No, no, I, I think I've seen them sort of advertised, um, but I haven't, I haven't read any at all. The first one um, is uh, there's uh, there's a, a big in joke uh, where he actually encounters a yeti on a toilet in Tootingbeck. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> Or you know, kind of hiding in an outhouse or something. Oh, else. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah, and there are several with Anne Travers as well, aren't there? I believe. I yeah. because they could get the Hazeman and Lincoln back archive of characters out, so they they exploit them for all they're worth. That's it. Yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, I think the Travers, uh, both Travers, are in, are in some of those books. I think I've only read about the first four or five. There's um, there's a Fang Rock sequel as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that's uh, that's quite a good one. Yeah, it's interesting about Anne Travers. Um, how you're saying that she was supposed to be the recurring character because one of the thoughts I had uh, watching, you know, watching again the 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 release before doing the recording was, um, it's a very proto unit story. This it's very um, setting up unit that we're going to see in the Pertwee years, um, you know, season seven and eight. Um, Captain Knight especially was reminded me of Captain Yates um, in that scene where he is trying to hit on to Anne Travers. Um, that, mm-hmm. And I said, like, oh, that's, that's Yates, that's Captain Yates. That is. But then Anne herself is very Liz, Liz Shaw. Very, isn't she? So you can see that that kind of, you know, um, getting set up there. And then <laughs> the funny thing is, though, the Doctor isn't the Doctor. 
the Doctor is Professor Travers. Because you've got this man coming in as the scientific advisor, doesn't want to be there. He's got, obviously, he's going to help. He's going to help the, the cause, but he's going to complain all the way through it. And that is just pure pert way in, in, in <laughs> season eight, that is. Yeah, yeah he's, he's very irrescible, isn't he? Um, much more than Troughton does in this one. Yeah. So it just seemed like there was, were kind of, you know, two two or three series in advance, we are seeing the sort of building blocks of, of what we're gonna what we're gonna have in the seventies. Yeah, maybe it's Leftbridge Stewart thinking, oh, well this worked quite well. Female yeah. scientist, yeah. <laughs> um yeah. <laughs> Soldiers from across the different divisions, yeah, yeah with different skills, yeah. Randy Office can put together some in. kind of task force. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, uh, Derek Sherman's autobiography. He says that uh, because he was writing the invasion at this point, that he then retrospectively put these characters in to sort of seed unit, um, which I hadn't realised. I thought this sort of this came along and then was the inspiration for the later things. But, um, yeah, um, I mean, I think he was, I don't think successfully tried to claim that the, the copyright for unit, didn't he? Um, sort of later in life. Um, but, uh, yeah. So in his book, at least yeah. he says that, uh, you know, basically the script was written and then he had the sort of proto unit stuff put in to, uh, to set it up for later on. I know Mervyn Hazeman was very happy to claim, um, the rights for the Brigadier. Because um, an interview, I think you gave, I was reading, you got two pounds and ten pence every time they used the brigadier. Which, <laughs> it was a bit more money than than anything else um, back in those days. But you know, he's quite happy to take his two pound and ten pence. And it's funny because you know, Hisman and Lincoln were, you know, three stories for Doctor Who, which is the Abominable Snowman, uh, the Web of Fear, and the all-time classic, the Dominators. <laughs> Claxon. Claxon. <laughs> but um, the reason they didn't write any more is because of the falling out that they had over the Dominators and the rights to the Quarks. Um, you know, the story is that the BBC, you know, they had the Quarks. They thought, oh, this is a great bit of merchandise and we've got this great design. We can go out and we can, you know, sell these toys. We can, you know, sell comics, put them in comics, this and the other. And they started doing that. And um, Hazeman and Lincoln got wind of it and said, well, actually, you know, you're not doing that without our permission. And kind of put the... Um, the breaks on it. It's one of the reasons why they took their name off that story, the other being that they got cancelled for the sixth part. Uh, but yeah, they took their name off that story and had a big falling out with the BBC over uh, image rights. So it's a bit strange that he's more easy. Oh, yes, fine, Brigadier, that's fine. I'll just have £2.10 every time you use them. But yeah, yeah um, well, I wonder whether because of the invasion, they'd already sort of signed that right away or said that they, they could use him and then the precedent was set. So who knows? Yeah, quite possibly. And then all those years later, there was a problem with character options as well, wasn't there? With the Yeti figure, I think. That, yeah, um, oh yes, because it got leaked, didn't it? And then this got wind of it all and it was cancelled. Yeah, something like it was leaked before the agreement had been reached or something mm-hmm. like that. So, uh, so yeah, that they... Uh, the the uh, this yeah I think that put an end to negotiations at that point and uh, yeah remains tantalising yeah. what could have been yeah it's all this behind the scenes politics that that goes on isn't it it's, it was the same we were coming back to the recovery of the missing episodes I know uh, again doing a bit of research there was um, a lot of hoo ha about you know when the episodes were going to get released and 
you know, would they be given over by the people that found them? Is, you know, again, politics of I don't like the current show when I'll give you the episodes when they're gone. There's all sorts of rumours like that. So it's it's such a web of intrigue, isn't it? So what do we think of the, the redesigned Yeti in this story? I I sort of prefer the abominable snowmen ones. I think the the lack of eyes on the abominable snowmen ones makes them a little bit more inscrutable. So, you know, when they're sort of standing by the TARDIS and stuff like that in the abominable snowmen, they're slightly more menacing. I think the glowing eyes is a little bit... Uh, maybe they need that in the darkness of the tunnels, I suppose, uh, to... But I, I slightly prefer the originals. Ah, you see, I slightly prefer the second ones. But I think that's just down to the original cover of the book because they look so good with their glowing eyes, with their ring round um, Sergeant Arnold on that cover. That's one of that's my all-time favourite Target book cover. So I, uh, yeah, I think that's sort of why they they always stick out but i think you're right i think they needed the eyes so that they look you could just see the eyes coming down the tunnels and then you get the silhouettes in the dark and then the sort of the full thing so i quite liked the fact that they're a bit more streamlined i'm not sure you'd have got two yetis two of the original yetis in a row down those those underground tunnels I'm not fat shaming. I just want to put that out there now. But <laughs> they had big hips; those original ones. <laughs> yeah. I think the thing I like about the original one is they are a bit more sort of top heavy. Um, so the sort of there's a lot of weight in the in the head and the shoulders, whereas these ones, you know, all the weight sort of is down round about the thighs, which is something that's obvious on the, the cover of the book. Sorry, sorry. Um, so I, I do like the the way that the original ones are a bit more um, well proportioned. Mm-hmm. Up. Um, but like you say, the eyes is is everything in in this, and especially sort of episode three. One of the, the high points of the animation for me was episode three, where the Yeti does come out the tunnel. I mean, that was that was a, a triumph for me. Shall we talk about the animation? So it's been discussed widely uh, across Twitter and across Doctor Who fandom. This is a a new technique. Um, of motion capture, um, which is is sort of cheaper and easier to do, where you've got a large number of characters. Um, so they've got the motion capture suits, and the, you've got performers who've studied the characters and then try to emulate their movements um, on the screen. How successful do you think uh, they are? Well. <laughs> Um, it's not hugely successful but the way I look at it is it's like the reign of terror animation where they need to know how they need to know how to get it wrong so that they can get it right next time we have to remember it's a brand new technique Mm -hmm. trialing it out on one episode here it's not going to be perfect it they're not going to get everything right straight away but they're trying it, and I think there are certainly moments where, sort of later in the episode, which maybe is because they were working on those scenes later, it was more effective than it was at the start. Yeah, I think um, it's it's up and down a little bit. I think there's there's definitely some triumphs in there. Like I say, that scene with the Yeti coming out the tunnel at the very start of, of episode three, um, and I think that was as far as I got the first time round, because... Um, 
you know, having spent so long waiting to get the disc, I, you know, put it on my DVD, my Blu-ray player, didn't load. Thought, oh Christ, here we go. My Blu-ray player is twelve years old, so I put it into the PlayStation, so it loaded. So eventually, I've got it loaded. So I watched episode one. I watched episode two. I had me my youngest son with us at the time, and we got into episode three. We got about ninety seconds in, and he come and turned the telly off. And I just thought, oh hey, everyone's a critic of this, aren't they? <laughs> so I got about as that far. I was like, oh, actually, this is like really good. And then, you know. Obviously, once he was in bed, I put the the, the other the rest of the episode on and, and started to see where the the complaints were coming from, sort of thing. I think there's there's definite issues with the movement of the 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 characters, um, or the yeah the movement because they're moving a lot more than they should be, and I think this is potentially part of a result of the way they've done it. So you've got actors who have studied. Um, you know the, the actors that they're emulating and have then gone and done it in a motion capture suit but they've kind of done subtle movements which haven't really come across in the animation when in the animation it's very exaggerated so everyone even when they should be standing still is swaying around um you know the scenes where it just looks as if they're all in some sort of early 90s manchester baggy rave um, <laughs> you know for the for the benefit yeah. of people who don't know what that is i'll there's a um, a great YouTube clip of Kevin and Perry where Perry's been to Manchester and he comes back and he's swaggering and he's like, you know, I've been to Oasis, I'm a kid. Um, look that up and you'll see exactly what I mean. And it's the exact same way that, you know, characters that should be stood still in an animation are just not. Um, yeah, well, Captain Knight does a massive hip thrust <laughs> on the line. Where did he spring from? While he's massively gesticulating his arms to to point to a character that's round the back of the scene. Yeah. And yeah, it's just just too much movement. Yeah. yeah. I wondered I wondered whether they'd motion captured humans or Thunderbird puppets. It's <laughs> 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 all about the arms, isn't it? Sort of um as though they're um, kind of marionettes a yeah. little bit. And and when when a character isn't speaking, they're still going like that. And I think in particular soldiers, um, they'd be sort of fairly standing fairly still, you know, at ease or something like that, wouldn't you? Not uh... yeah, yeah. My my friend Sai sent me a text because I asked him for some opinions, <laughs> and he said, um, bizarrely, given that they were rotoscoping actors, none of the characters moved natu- naturally at all. They're all gesticulating wildly and swaying around as if they were drunk. <laughs> the way their eyes swing round and stare is frankly terrifying. He said. <laughs> I think. I mean, the other thing is when they do move, when they are supposed to move, and the things doing things like walking out of a room, then it is. Again, it's. I mean, you've shared that that clip with us with a caption when the diary assets. So there's a lot of lot of improvement. I think there's a lot of work to be done um, in terms of improvement there. But it's it's like Sai says. It's you know you you learn better by making mistakes than you do by getting it right. Um, Absolutely, and, and I think it's telling that. Um, you know, all we got on this disc is a sort of like a five-minute bit about the animation. I was personally expecting something a bit chunkier, but the the stuff that was said in that um, in that special feature was quite telling. In as much as you get the impression that we're at the stage now of reanimating these missing episodes, where we've kind of cherry-picked the easy fruit 
you know, with the mm-hmm. ones that are easy to do, the ones that are coming up now, um, sort of like your likes of Marco Polo and the Dalek Master Plan, you know, these are got complex sets, lots of characters, lots of costume changes with those characters. And uh, I forget the guy's name, but you made it quite clear that this method of animating is going to be a lot easier, a lot quicker, and a lot cheaper to do for any forthcoming um, release. So kind of like, I think it begs the question of, you know, if we're not happy with this, are we willing to give them a chance to get it better? Or do we want to go back to sort of the the more traditional 2D style animations? I think as much as I'm, uh, you know, maybe taking the piss a little bit, it was not far into the episode that I just got used to it and went with it. Um, I didn't find it sort of jarring for 25 minutes. And for me, it's better than telesnaps. I'd rather see characters moving around like that, get a sense of, of where it, you know, what's happening, where everybody is, than, uh, you know, telesnaps where you might see the same photo every time a particular character speaks. Yeah, I mean, the telesnaps are a fantastic resource. And it's amazing that we've got this visual um, representation of what was on the screen, but they're, there's, they're only finite. They don't capture everything. And sometimes there are whole large portions of scenes that he didn't snap because he went off to get a cup of tea or whatever. And so it sometimes it's disproportionate. You'll get lots from one scene and then just a couple from the next scene and things like that. So it's not necessarily accurately representing everything that's happened because of course it can't unless he was snapping every 10 seconds um it wasn't going to happen really was it so it's yeah i i like telesnaps but i often lose concentration through the episode and my mind drifts which it didn't in this animation and i think one of the things that the animation really did excel in was the backgrounds and the sets, they all looked really superb. And particularly the 3D um, so, um, London Underground map yeah. looked as convincing as it does in the episode. And I like the way it's g- gently rocking the whole time. And just little little bit attention to detail like that worked really well. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, with the telly snaps, um, I'm conscious I listened to the Two Watch Who podcast about um, the Space Pirates a couple of months ago and, and Sarah on there made a very good point of that the telly snaps that survive of that episode are very limited so you know this is a, an episode where which has got it's not thought of greatly um, but it's part of that reason because we have so little of it surviving that we only have yeah well there are no telly snaps at all for the space pirates because he died oh um, half halfway through the invasion i think or oh. something so so the whole service had just stopped at that point oh, so we're lucky that there are only sort of five episodes missing yeah or whatever that he uh, that he missed yeah um but uh, i mean i agree I, I watched you know um web of fear for the first time um it's been a couple of months ago maybe it's last year with the, with lockdown i watched it on britbox and it was noticeable how difficult i found episode three um you know i've, I've I've got tweets, you know, I, I tweeted the whole thing when I watched it. Um, and, you know, I said in the, the tweet of episode three, I don't know if it's the telly snaps, but this episode really dragged for me. This really, you know, this is where I hit a bit of a wall with this episode. And it totally didn't in with the animation. The animation makes it a lot, a lot easier for certainly me to 
to watch, take in, absorb and enjoy your story. The, the, the really frustrating thing being that this is the one missing episode that we do definitively know exists as well, isn't yeah. it? Uh, mm-hmm. That's it's kind of at the back of your mind a little bit, I think, when you when you watch an animation or a tele snap of it. That um, that you know, but for somebody's selfishness, we we could be watching it. Yeah. And that is that is the really frustrating thing because you think, what is that person doing with mm. with that episode? I mean, unless they've had it vid fired and processed up to the standard that we've got on the Blu-ray, unless they've you know personally hired Fraser Hines to come around and sit in the front room and do a commentary on it, going to sat next. Yeah. <laughs> what extra are they getting from not having this in a set with with everything else? It's it's baffling. It's mind mind boggling. If you ask me, I just don't I don't understand what you could possibly get out of just sitting on that on any of them to be honest no I you can understand it if it's an episode that someone picked up from the BBC in the 1970s and they don't know that the episode is missing because that is still potentially an option um but yeah but to sort of willfully keep hold of an episode just so that other people can't watch it, just it wouldn't even occur to me. Yeah. But then that's me. <laughs> so, or to use it as like leverage of you know, um, I don't want this person in charge. Take this person out, and I will give you this back. It's just hmm. no. Don't get me head around it. No, definitely. All right, so you've been uh, conducting a little bit of research. Mm. On Twitter, Fraser, about about reactions to yes. the story and information. I did. I did a bit of uh, market research coming in, um, and I asked. I, I set a couple of polls uh, around the web for you. One of them was specifically around the animation, or two of them were. And um, so the first one was, how do you rate the animation for episode three? Is it the options being good slash great? Um, average or disappointing slash terrible and for a long while I thought I was going to get a very surprising result because um, average was quite in the lead um, but then as the, the numbers came in I did get 50, 50 votes in total and 52% in the end went for disappointing or terrible um, with 36 going for average and then 12% going for, for good and great so overall I think it's not really been well, well received mm-hmm. but sort of the the thing I was more interested in is how is that much is that going to put people off getting another one? Because, you know, going back, if this is the only way that we're going to likely going to be able to get other animated releases, um, you know, will people, you know, trust that this, the next time this might be a bit better or, um, or not so asked, um, if this animation style was done on another release, would you buy that release? Um, I had 39 responses to that. The majority did say yes, 43% said yes, um, I had 36% that said no, so it was a bit close, but then I give an option of yes, but only if it's substantially better, which got sort of 20, 21% of that, so I think the vast majority of people are willing to give it another go, um, if it gets better, then they will you know, get it, because you know, I think like we've dis- discussed, um, and it, an animation, even an animation like this, is better than the telly snaps, which is better than... Mm-hmm. Just the audio, which is better than absolutely nothing, I think. So, um, it's 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 a it's a good sign that yes, you know, people will will still invest in this and um, they will get the opportunity to, um, you know, 
do another one because you know public gets what the public wants. That's and, it. And like you said, I'm sure they, they've learned a lot of lessons from this. You know, the you know technology improves over time. I mean, I think like 20 years ago we had like Jar Jar Binks and Gollum, and I think motion capture was very much just the domain of like big budget movies, wasn't it? So yeah. the fact that it's now a possibility on a straight to DVD or Blu-ray release, which is quite niche as well, isn't it, for for, for Doctor Who fans? Um, you know, it just shows how the cost of these things comes down over time, and that you know the um, the technology is uh, is more widely available. Yeah, and I think they will they will get better. They will learn from you know the reaction to this. Um, or at least I'd like to think they would take the feedback and say, actually, well, this is what people didn't like, and this is what people would like. So this is what we need to do to again. Because you saw the other bit of research I did was to go back to the other animations. I'd rewatch things like the Tenth Planet Part Four and the Moon Base and um, Invasion and whatnot. Now I haven't got the special edition of Power of the Daleks, but you know, again that one from Britbox, you could see the animation is. I can see why they wanted to do a special edition. Essentially, having watched, mm-hmm. you know, like the Tenth Planet, which is beautiful, and the Moon Base, which are really good animations, but the very the structure is very um, graphic novel style. You know, there were, it was like looking at a panel in a in a comic as opposed to, um, you know, watching watching a television program. Well, yeah, exactly. That um, grab of the um, Tenth Planet Cybermen that you sent me last yeah. night, Fraser, was was a case in point. It's absolutely beautiful piece of artwork, but yeah, I see exactly yeah. what you mean. Yeah. Angles and shadows and things, isn't it? Yeah. And- yeah, it's, it's stylized. Yeah, um, so obviously, and, and again, you know, I watched um, I watched a bit of the Invasion episode one, which is one of the first ones that they've done. And then you can't you look at other ones they've done since then. It's you can see that there has been that progression. It has got better. Um, I kind of got us thinking. You know, what what do we want from an animation? You know, do we want something like um, you know the Tenth Planet, which is a bit more stylized? Um, perhaps not quite as representative of what was actually on the screen at the time? Or do we want something that is more um, naturalistic, that is more sort of like, well, yes, this is, you know, a shot-for-shot recreation of what was on the screen? Um, How do we feel about that? I think fans are very much divided on it. I mean, I know amongst my friends there are... um, certain friends of mine who are very disappointed that they've gone to town with the animation and done things that they wouldn't have done in 1966, 67, 68 in there. And it's not a for free recreation in black and white of what would have been on the screen. Personally, I have to say my favorite one of the, of the new animations, particularly so far is the Macro terror. And that was like, a widescreen version of the story where they take what I think they would love to have done in 1967 yeah. and put it on the screen. So you can have Polly hanging out of a macra's claw. You can have the macra crawling up and down over, um, over ceilings and over all angles, manipulating switches that that macra prop, prop would never have done. And I think that's perfectly valid. Yeah. And I, I, and I also think it's perfectly valid to make it in colour and to make it 16.9 and to make it as future-proof as possible. Because if you're going to put your investment into this, you want something that is going to to work as a whole. 
And again, uh, I've seen sort of criticisms of, oh, why do you bother animating episodes that still exist? Because you do, because you make a whole product. And otherwise, you've got a very jarring mix. It doesn't mean that you can't watch the existing episodes in the, in the place of those animations. But if you're a new fan, you might find it actually better to watch something a bit more modern and colourful in one go without having to switch to a, a fairly ropey black and white episode mm. of Doctor Who that doesn't match up with what you've just watched in, in the animation or whatever. So I, I, I have no problem with that at all. I can understand, particularly with the early releases where you were getting the, the missing episodes of a story where you want to keep that then in line with the episodes of the story and make it in 4-3 and black and white or sort of sepia tones. And that, that, that was fine. But I think if you're animating a whole story, then, then go for it and do something brilliant and clever and wonderful. I'm the same. I, I'm all for, yeah, letting the animators use their own creativity um, and, and enhance what's already there. The the few from the deep where with the, the helicopter. Yeah, that was um, a magnificent scene, wasn't it? Yeah, so where you originally got the Doctor just struggling to control the helicopter, yeah. they've got the huge tendrils coming out the sea and attacking it, and he's trying to avoid them. Um, it fits beautifully with the sound and the and, you know the time that they've got there, and just makes a really exciting sequence as well. So, um, no, I think you know if you if you get these really talented animators and stuff, you've got to let them uh, have a bit of creative control and, uh, and and put their own flourishes in as well. Yeah, I think for me, um, I'm, I'm just greedy. I want both. <laughs> I, want, I want a special edition of an animation i want you know so yes so this is what it would have looked like and then this is the animation but with the cgi effects sort of there's always one there is and it's always me so there we go. <laughs> but yeah it's it's, it's interesting because you know i think makatera is a really good example there of, of where they have you know took what was and blended it with what could have been and i think they've got a very good balance there it's you know sort of like the the exterior shots of the refinery are very um you know clearly not what was there but it's really good and it really fits in and and like you say the movement of the macra around as opposed to just being a static you know fiberglass thing that can't possibly move to now being able to scuttle around and have eyes coming out of the the dark and scaring us and what is i think that's the perfect balance if i'm being honest yeah, they were sort of on the back of a lorry or something, weren't they? Um, and, and that was how they moved around. So you know, they, they, they wouldn't have been particularly uh, uh, kind of elegant or anything else. No, and um, you can see on the, the few clips, can't you, of the actors having to throw themselves into the macro yeah. <laughs> rather than the macro come and get them. So Yeah. So, you know, on the basis that this is potentially the future of, of animation for missing episodes, what, are we, what would we like to see next? what is the next one that we would like to see either done in this style or done differently but what what have we got our eyes on next well <laughs> uh, master plan is always the ultimate goal isn't it it's such a fabulous story and if they could do that then that would be yeah i think that would be amazing yeah i think i think master plan once this technology is 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 maybe a little bit more developed, um, 
you know, maybe, you know, maybe if they leave that one to last um, until it's because that's that's going to be a huge release, isn't it? Like kind of both physically and yeah. you know, in terms of uh, it would be the last Dalek story, won't it? That it will, uh, yeah, that's uh, yeah, that, that animated mm-hmm. or anything. So it's going to be um, you know probably commercially one of the bigger ones as well. Yeah. Um, the rumors have been swirling around the Abominable Snowman, haven't they? But there's, there's never yeah. been a, an official release of that. Um, and I guess maybe this is a little bit of a test case in terms of doing the the Yeti. Ah, oh, yeah, that could be. And again, there are quite a lot of characters in that story as well. So maybe that's sort of the reasoning. Um, but yeah, I, I think the historicals are the ones that they, that will benefit from this. So I, I'd love them to do the Myth Makers. Yeah. That's my favourite missing story of all. So I'd love to see that. Yeah. Well, I'm going to say The Crusade. Because yeah. yeah. mm-hmm. we've got season two. And it's ready to do, go. You know yeah, right, that would would make sense, wouldn't it? You know, there's there's the William Hartnell collection box set. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and they they can do do justice now to the harem that Barbara gets put in. <laughs> with, with... <laughs> so I'm, I'm 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 thinking commercially. You guys are thinking as fans. <laughs> <laughs> there's always one. Yeah. <laughs> Other than Evil of the Daleks, which is out. Um, in September, we the other one that's announced is Galaxy Four, isn't it? I'm not oh, yeah. sure which of the two animation houses are doing that one because this is this is a big Finnish creative, isn't it? Yeah, um, who did the the Fury it's, from yeah, um, and it's the other one whose name I can't remember. They tend to do the the Dalek ones, don't they? Yeah, um, the other the other one. So they'll they'll be doing um, Evil of the Daleks as well, I guess. Yeah, because I guess Galaxy Four is a it's a very simple one to do. So there's not many characters, not yeah. many human characters. Clone race. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, uh, yeah, um, a couple of spaceships and then just like a, an arid empty planet as well. Yeah. And the reels don't move very much. So they, they're, they're fine. They can just sit in their steamy tanks and just be half seen and yeah. you're done. Yeah. And, and you know what they, um, isn't the, um, the uh, the very top of the Emperor Dalek in Evil of the Daleks is a Chumbly, isn't he? It is, yeah. Mm-hmm. They animated that for Evil, Evil of the Daleks. <laughs> yeah, they've got half a model. <laughs> just need to cut around it. <laughs> <laughs> all, all the secrets are being spoiled tonight, mate. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, mean, got really, I guess that's going to be next year now, isn't it? But I would have thought so. Yeah. So yeah, two animations in one year. God. <laughs> I know that's uh, technically only eight episodes, but that's fine. <laughs> this story um, features many excellent things. So we've got two of my favourite individual episodes of Doctor Who ever in one story, which is part one, which is just fantastic, particularly the scenes in um, uh, the museum, which are just magnificent and all done on film with the flickering candlelights and all the close-ups, and and um, Travers just turning around and saying, "Stubborn old goat," <laughs> things yeah. like that. And, and that it's just a masterclass in tension and atmosphere. And then you've got episode four, which I think is just one of the most superb episodes of Doctor Who ever made. I, there are so many things in that episode that are magnificent. Um, Douglas Canfield, I think, particularly um, favouring 
putting Troughton right at the front of the screen and you can just see his face particularly the scene where he's talking about the intelligence and where it comes from and you've got the spooky mu- music playing in the background and you're just watching Troughton's face and it's just just phenomenal I love the way that he reuses those shots almost shot for shot with Tom Baker in Terror of the Zygons and Seeds of Doom so you've got the bit where the where he's saying the sea may be calm but it's never empty or and um, and then the bit where he's talking about the crinoids in the Antarctic base, which is ex- almost exactly the same, where the Doctor is right at the forefront telling you these facts about the alien creatures and and you're just watching him and just little bits going on in the background. It's just fantastic. And obviously, of course, you've got the great big amazing army battle in Covent Garden, which is right up Douglas Canfield Street, isn't it? And they're throwing everything at it in... And it's probably the very first of those army versus an alien menace scenes that we get in Doctor Who and sets the pattern for for the next sort of five, six years. So, yeah, and it's one of the best. It's terrific, isn't it? And just so brutal as well, the way that Lester Stewart is the only survivor. So it's left him really shaken. Um, But, yeah, just uh, all the soldiers just getting killed one by one. And shot so well that it looks like there's way more Yeti than the, the costumes that they must have had as well. It looks like they're coming in from all different entrances. Um, really, really dynamic. Yeah, I've got, I love the shot where they pull the soldier off the off the top of the box where he thinks he's safe. And they yeah. just grab his legs and just pull him to his death. And yeah, it's just awesome. Yeah. I was a bit disconcerted with that scene uh, <laughs> the first time I watched it because they played the wrong music. It's the Cybermen music. (laughs) 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 I'm not going to lie, that did disconcert us a little bit, but I got over it. (laughs) When I first, yeah, when I first heard it, I had um, a recording of the soundtrack, and this was in the days before you had the narrated soundtracks. So you literally just had the music and roars and gun noises going off and trying to imagine what the hell was going on. And it was a really crystal clear recording of it. So it must have come from um, Graham Strong's... Is it Graham Strong's tapes? I think it is, isn't it? Um, Almost sort of first or second generation down. So it was was really clear. But I had no idea what was actually happening on the screen. So so yeah, but um, that was really exciting. And then... I was going to say, you've got episode five, which is Doctor Who's first real-time episode. So it starts off with um, the Travers' great intelligence um, being saying, you've got 20 minutes to do what you need to do. And then the episode almost proceeds in real time, all those years before 42. And no one ever no one ever comments on that. It really bugs me because I really like that. It's really good. And there's little things all the way through where they say they say, Oh, we've got 17 minutes or whatever, and while the doctor and um Anne are busy working together and trying to get the remote control working and things like that. It's, yeah, it's a really classy episode. That never occurred to me till you pointed it out, but yeah, it's it's absolutely spot on, isn't it? It's uh, it's it's a real sort of ticking clock. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, race against time. It's it's fantastic. Yeah, I was exactly the same until you've like said that. Now that's set in real time. I thought that episode was very poorly paced. To be honest, to be fair, it is one twenty minutes. Come on, mm-hmm. no, until you actually take a step back and go, yeah. But if that's in real time, then yeah, it makes a lot more, a lot more sense. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
I, to be fair, it is a marking time episode, really, before you get to the big um, denouement and um, the big finale in the in the ticket station and control room. Um, but yeah, I, it's just one of those little things I've noticed and thought, well, no one ever comments on that. So I'll give Mark that exclusive for Trap 1. So there you go, people. All in fantastic observation yeah and, and you talk about the, the doctor and Anne there what a great pairing those two were i think you can see why you know there was maybe thoughts at the time of bringing her back yeah. because they're brilliant together um you know and, and Troughton, uh, the doctor is is you know kind of a little bit dismissive of victoria and jamie at times isn't he because he's got this other brilliant scientific mind there who's uh, you know, kind of really sparking off him. And it sounds from the behind-the-scenes stuff um, from Tina Packer, Tina isn't Packer, it? yeah. Um, that, you know, the, the Trout actually said to her, you know, let, let's push for a sort of a romantic sort of uh, idea for the Doctor here that'd be almost like a girlfriend for him. So, uh, yeah, he, he obviously, uh, you know, was aware of that chemistry that mm-hmm. they had as well. I just love the way he calls her Travers all the way through. Yeah. It's just lovely. It's... Yeah, it's just a really nice touch. And he, he never calls her Anne. It's always Travers. And, yeah, it, it's a really magnificent relationship. And Tina Packer is phenomenally good. And she doesn't get the kudos that she deserves for being sort of the big, big female emancipated scientist, mm-hmm. a really strong female character, not a screamer until she's actually literally picked up by the Yeti or or whatever. Um, she doesn't go to pieces. She's very often, she is, yeah, I think she's a really fantastic character and one of the great unsung characters in Doctor Who. Mm. And she's, a, she's one of a collection in, in season five of strong female characters. We've got, you know, um, you know, you have Miss Garrett in the Ice Warriors. You've got obviously yeah. Zoe coming up in um, the Wheel in Space. Um, and what is the name of the person in Tomb of Cybermen? Oh, Kaftan. Yes, yeah. So yeah. you know, season and of course Astrid yes. in yeah. the world, which again has a, that same kind of relationship with the Doctor, where there's a bit of bit of flirting, bit of an attraction there. I think the Second Doctor has an eye for a slightly mature woman because <laughs> he has the same with Gemma Corwin at the end of the season as well in um, the Wheel in Space. Mm-hmm. Yep. A lot of this comes to light, I suppose, especially with um, Enemy of the World and Web of Fear, because now that we can actually see them, it's not as obvious probably on audio um, as when you can see their body language together and, uh, and everything like that. Yeah, cause Captain Knight, when he's in that, that, you know, that classic line of, um, you know, mm-hmm. you know, well, as a little girl, I wanted to be a scientist, so I became a scientist. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's, he's got quite a, a sort of Jack the Lad sort of body body language about him, hasn't he? Which he just kind of shoots down. Yeah, and um, I gotta say, like again, but I, what I liked particularly on the commentary was um, they Toby Hado challenged Ralph Watson on that and said, "Oh, this is one of those scenes where you're where it's the, the Doctor Who is sexist kind of thing." And Ralph Watson turns around and says, "Yeah, he said it wasn't played like that. Look, he said I give a big knowing smile at the end of that scene that always gets cut out of the." of the clips when you when you see it where he said i know that i'm just playing you like this and it's a bit of banter it's not meant to be 
um, I'm a chauvinist. It's it's a bit more than that. Okay, it's little thoughtful bits of performance all the way through this story. I think that really really lift it because he sort of looks at the other soldier as well as he says it, as if to say like, yeah, yeah. we'll get a rise out of her. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I love the way she gets halfway through the story and she's changed all her clothes and her hair <laughs> as well. It was just wonderful. <laughs> I don't know where she gets the time to do that, but there must be a big bathroom somewhere in that base. (laughs) Which is very, um, it's also a bit of an early Zoe, would you say? Yeah, there are definite elements there, aren't there? Yeah, because it it kind of, I mean, I love this this TARDIS team um, of, you know, second Doctor, Jamie and Victoria. I know no one else likes Victoria, but I do. Um, But I do think the dynamic of, Dr. Jamie and Zoe works better than Dr. Jamie and Victoria, purely because, you know, Victoria is very similar to Jamie um, in as much as sort of like, uh, as Victorian child, you know, out of time, not, you know, quite as up to speed with even modern day society if they land on contemporary earth. Whereas with Zoe, you get um, you get two, two interesting relationships. You have the Doctor and Jamie, um, but then you have... Um, the Doctor and Zoe, someone he can talk to on a level much closer to his own. And he gets that with Anne Travers as well. Um, you know, he gets to go into the, the back room and, you know, make a control box and whatnot, which, you know, if you didn't have that character, you wouldn't necessarily be able to do. But if you put this story next season, you don't need Anne because you can do that with Zoe. Exactly. And I think maybe that's one of the reasons why they didn't bring her back in the invasion because they'd got a character who could do all of that stuff and be proactive and lead parts of the story and do the scientific bits that were needed. And maybe there wasn't so much of a strong role for Anne because otherwise, if you pair her and Zoe off together, you're not going to get such a contrast as you did with her and Isabel, for instance. Yeah. But it's interesting you mentioned Victoria because I don't think she comes out of this story brilliantly. She doesn't get a great deal to do, really, does she? No, she doesn't. Um, and it's, it's it's another one of these stories where I say that. It's like, oh, it's not a good story of a Victoria. So it's like, where are the good Victoria stories? <laughs> <laughs> well, she blabs about the tariff to Charlie and stuff, yeah. doesn't she? Oh, dear. <laughs> Yeah, so heavily signposted as the, as the one who's in the control as the intelligence. And it's just like, oh, no. Uh, um, but, you know, she's, I think she's, a, she's an interesting character. She does bring, um, you know, something different to to the story. You know, she's possibly not a character that people like, but she's one of these ones, um, sort of like Susan and, and Adric, um, where... Perhaps you don't like that character, but that character is serving a purpose in the story. So the story is better for that character being there, regardless yeah. of how how you feel for them. So again, you know, if we transpose this, if we put Zoe in this story instead of Victoria, is Zoe going to go wandering down the the tunnels looking for the Doctor? And no, um, exactly. I, you know, it adds you know bits that that you wouldn't get otherwise, and um. A kind of one of the one of the I say criticisms I would have of this story is that there is a bit of pacing issues with it. I think, and um, there is bits where people go off and get captured and come back again, and there's a bit of back and forth in that respect. Um, but I always say this, you know, if I think a story is is too long, um, you know, over 
you know, the pacing is bad, then what would I cut out? That's, that's, exactly. that's the testimony. Is that, well, what are you going to cut out then, Fraser? And I don't have an answer to that because no, I, I like everything I think... that's in it. I like the bits where Victoria, I think um, in that episode, you know, there's no doctor, so it is very much just Jamie and Victoria having to run the show, and it's the strength of those two characters that means that you don't necessarily miss the doctor because Jamie's doing something, Victoria's doing something. It might not be what you want her to do, what might not be very clever or very good, but in terms of the story, it keeps the story going. Yeah, and you've got the the great scene where she realises it's Professor Travers who they met two stories ago, and he's old. Yeah, and then that that moment of realisation between sort of the two characters is really really good. Yeah, and the fact Jamie hasn't spotted that at all, and he's just sort of foolishly arguing his point, and Victoria is the one who stops and says, "Look, it's it's, it's Professor, Professor Travers from Tibet." Mm-hmm. It's not something Doctor Who does at any other time, I can't think, but it's it's, it's a great idea, isn't it, as time travellers to meet the same character, uh, you know, so close. Obviously, they meet the Brigadier, uh, you know, at, at different points in his life, but not in such a short period of time in the same series. I suppose there's only uh, Canton, Everett, Delaware, the third, that, uh, that would be comparable like that, where yeah. they, mm-hmm. you know, they meet him as an old man, Um Again, so the, yeah, that, that's a brilliant idea. And then the the, the scene, I suppose, the important scene for Victoria is where she overhears Travers and and Travers and Travers talking about the sort of suspicions of the Doctor, um, which is a perfect logical thing for Anne to think because she hasn't met him. To say, well, hang on, every time this guy turns up, the uh, the intelligence and the Yetis turn up as well. Don't you find that a bit suspicious? Um, and it feeds into that whole everybody's suspicious of everybody else um and i suppose even even the doctor being missing for episode two you know you don't you don't know where he's been you know could he be under the influence of the intelligence as well it's uh it's so well done and i think the fact that it's um it's arnold in the end is it's a surprise it's yeah. uh mm-hmm. yeah, I think doctor who in a lot of cases fails to keep things like that uh, you know thinking about like the uh the deadly assassin and things where it's you know it's, it's fairly obvious that it's goth, isn't it? Um, yeah. Sort of early on, this is a real, a real surprising yeah, one. It's, it's set up all the way that it's Chorley. Yeah, it's so obviously Chorley. He's so slimy and horrible. It's definitely going to be Chorley. And that scene where they find him again in episode six, and the where he knows what it is, and they're all busy accusing him and the way he looks absolutely terrified and just says, it's not me. It's not me. It's him. And then suddenly they're pointing at Arnold and it's the love, the nice grumpy, but um, great sort of soldier who's been there all the way through. Who's sort of, you've grown to like despite him being horrible to driver Evans driver. I am C shouldn't be down here. Really? <laughs> um, and he's quite Evans. You're a bit suspicious of as well because yeah, he just turns up because the brigadier doesn't recognise him as well. No, yeah, that's just brigadier just having loads more in his mind, which also uh, obviously in turn casts suspicion on the brigadier. So it's it's really well done. There's only the one line with Arnold, isn't it? When they when they said, "Do you think do you think the doctor's been captured?" And he goes, "No." And they go, "Why do you think that?" And he goes, "Just a hunch." Mm-hmm. But it's weird. It's like episode two or something, yeah, isn't it? You don't so, think about it. And watching this weekly, um, you know, they 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 are giving the viewer a lot of credit. I think with you know for 
even remembering Chorley, I suppose, because he's he just disappeared quite early on, yeah. doesn't he? He's, yeah, he's a bit of a disposable character. But I think um, what I like to do with Arnold is to do the um, the it's a very Agatha Christie thing, um, sort of. Um, and then there were none, where um, they kind of take him out the stories at episode five or four, where yeah, because he goes into the web, goes doesn't into he? The web and... With another character whose name I've forgotten, um, on the trolley, and is it Evans that pulls them out, and obviously you've got that guy there, and the other, and Arnold's left for dead. So you just think, oh, well, he's dead, isn't now It's not him. Mm-hmm. He does come yeah. back, but yeah, it's it's a classic bit of misdirection, and, and that's sort of like the, the subplot of this, isn't it? It's the um, the whodunit, or mm-hmm. who is it, as it were, which kind of drives the rest of the story going. Um, yeah, and I think that's... That's a really good bit. And then when it does turn out to be Arnold, it's a bit like, <laughs> it's imagine if, if Benton turned out to be the wrong in, in <laughs> exactly. the dinosaurs or something. <laughs> no, Benton! Um, you, <laughs> you can accept it yet because no one likes him. Um, but Benton! <laughs> I'm a bit controversial again. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's fair to say this is not a plot-heavy story. This is a, a story that's more about the tension and the atmosphere and the yeah. peril and it really does sustain that atmosphere all the way through. It's quite oppressive. The tunnels are such a good setting for a story like this because you've got lots of places you can travel, but you've also got the web coming in and sort of the feeling of it being a base under siege, except it's an underground under siege really. So yeah. Um, yeah. And so yeah, it's not. It's just a masterclass of how you do this kind of story, and I don't think there is a better one. No, and even that sort of twist ending of the Doctor's plan being undone by Jamie, uh, you know, like his own companion, um, kind of uh, sabotaging the plan, albeit with his backup plan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, all that, all that side of stuff is really good, and I quite like it. It's like Evil of the Daleks as well, when there's a bit of tension between the Doctor and Jamie. It's quite unsettling, isn't it? And they they both play those scenes like that really, really well. Um, I, I love that that element of it. Yeah, but the, I mean, the Great Intelligence isn't really hugely intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> I think that is safe to say. It is not. It's not a a really master planner. I don't know what they thought this was going to achieve by. Um, ridding London of the underground by putting some webs and some mist over London. Because there's no sort of nothing to sort of say, well, is this happening all over the country or is it just over Greater London or just this little part of central London or what? It's, there's no sort of thought sort of beyond that. And I think maybe that's just because they wanted to tell this story and put. Is the plan not that they, it's a, just a base of operations to draw the Doctor yeah. to? Oh, of course it is, yes, because they captured the TARDIS at the start, don't yeah. they? He managed to arrive sort of half a mile from where the intelligence wanted him to arrive, which sets off the whole sort of sequence of events. Oh, Mark, you're too good at this. Finding <laughs> <laughs> the holes in my, my plot holes. Were you not listening to Colonel Lethbridge-Stewart's PowerPoint presentation because it was all explained in the SI? Oh, sorry, it was like a slideshow. I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> Anytime someone says the words, next slide, please, you should jump to attention nowadays. 
<laughs> so I know what I did when this I This is where I go wrong with the demons as well, you see, so. <laughs> but it's, the whole thing is Travers' fault, though. Do you feel like he should have got some kind of comeuppance after everything that happened in Tibet to reactivate a Yeti sphere? Um, it's pretty unforgivable, isn't it? It's scientific curiosity, isn't it? It's, you know, what, what, <laughs> what else are you going to do? You've got this, you've got this box. I mean, I think, um, is it not in the novelisation? Um, sorry, you'll have read this, but the I think in the novelisation, correct us if I'm wrong, that it's spelled out that Professor Travers returns from Tibet with a yeti, which is obviously inactive and dormant, and comes back with this yeti saying, oh, I've seen the yeti, he has the proof, and everyone just goes, well, that's just a robot, mate, that's not a yeti. And he's kind of um, laughed out of the community, as it were, um, scientific community. And he's he's kind of like down on his luck and he's a bit more, he's quite... Um, yeah, he's having to justify his position, yeah. isn't he, I think, so I think and the, his reputation. The motivation for him in the novel side is that um, he tries to reactivate the sphere to kind of prove that he is right. And yes, honest, there was yetis and I'll show you, I'll prove it, I'll get this working and... Um, and, and off he goes. So it is a bit more explained in the, in the novel, I think. You'd think, I mean, I suppose one, like getting the Yeti back must have been quite tricky. You can imagine it coming around the baggage carousel as the. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the fact that, yeah, okay, so it's not a living Yeti, but it's a super advanced robot in the 1930s or 1940s might have attracted some scientific curiosity as well. Well, yeah, well, particularly with a great big world war going on as well, you think they'd be after the technology. It's, it's invulnerable to bullets and grenades as yes. well. <laughs> We've all seen Paddington. and we know what scientists of that era were like. All about big dinners and gentlemen's <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> clubs and whatnot. So it's, it's mm-hmm. understandable enough. But you know, kind of speaking of the Yetis and the and the intelligence, I think another one of the the things I say criticism. I'm not really criticising, but one of the one of the points I had with this was, you know, is the great intelligence actually that effective of a antagonist in this? Because the intelligence doesn't pop up until episode five. We have episodes five and six where we eventually find out what the intelligence wants. We've had four episodes before then of Yetis in the underground, um, you know, battling people, killing people, you know, all the webs and whatnot. And we haven't missed, by this point, I don't think, we haven't really missed an antagonist. We haven't really missed anyone driving the Yetis. Um, So what do you guys think of actually the great intelligence itself? The, the self-styled great intelligence. It's, uh, <laughs> it's an intelligence, but is it great? <laughs> to, uh, to, to craft our own nicknames, wouldn't we? <laughs> yeah, they've always called me the great intelligence. That's my yeah. name, yeah. You don't know. You've not met my race. <laughs> I suppose if his plan had just come off without a hitch, it, it would have gained control of the Doctor and the TARDIS and, and become a much more credible threat, wouldn't it? I suppose it's it's ambitious more than great, the intelligence. Yeah, and I, I think they're not repeating what they did in The Abominable Snowman, which is admirable. So in that you've got Padma Sambhavar and his possession and the way his voice changes when he's taken over by the intelligence and, and a, a, a sinister sort of um, villain for the Doctor to face off against. Um, so I think it's 
to the story's credit that they're not sort of doing exactly the same story again and having someone talking in different voices all the time until you get to part six. So again, I think it comes down to what kind of story they want to tell, and it's a it's a different kind of story, but using the same protagonist sort of as the central overarching thing, and then because the audience are very probably aware of what the great intelligence was from sort of six weeks ago or 12 weeks ago, wasn't it? I think, yeah, because it's the Ice Warriors and Enemy of the World. So they kind of remember what happened in that story sort of fairly clearly. So they'll know about sort of the modus operandi of the great intelligence. And you've got that great moment, haven't you, where Jamie goes to smash the pyramids the glass pyramid because that's what stopped the intelligence last time and actually that doesn't work and that just stops that little bit those those few yeti but it doesn't stop the whole lot so it's like almost a development and then you're keeping it back and keeping the big villain um confrontation for the final part and then you've got your big finale then and voice wise it is jack woolgar isn't it that plays out yeah that's so effective isn't it the um the the because he's had such a kind of a warm Yorkshire accent all the way through, and then yeah. coming to that sort of really uh, sort of cut glass RP pronunciation um, as as his uh, when he's possessed by the intelligence, he's, he's brilliant. And then one of the lovely features that we haven't mentioned on here, oh yes, yeah, of course, is that his son found recordings that he had at home where he practiced various voices for it as well, which is just like an amazing thing to still have, isn't it? Yeah, that was a really phenomenal find and really, really interesting to s- sort of hear him working through these different, the same part of the script, but trying out different voices. And actually, I think he had, I have to say, he picked the right one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think it's um, sort of the credit to and the lengths that you went to to, to actually, you know, get that, get that right. Um, fantastic. And it was lovely to hear his son talking about his dad. Yes. And uh, being there at the time and remembering him sort of working through the script and doing these things and then the lovely memories of him watching his dad on TV and now sort of 40-odd years after his death being able to have that little connection still with his dad. And have his little... Yeah, and he's still got his little Yeti as well. And and the face mask that that they didn't even use. (laughs) Well, yeah, that would have been an interesting... And I mean, it's interesting they did it in Dragonfire, but mm-hmm. it would have been a lot for uh, for 1967, I suppose. It would. Absolutely, it would. So go back to the Yeti. Um, you know, my introduction to the Yeti was through the Five Doctors. Um, you know that tiny scene where um, you know he maddened it and he has to blast it with a firework and whatnot. So it it, it was a long time before. I, learned that yetis were robots i thought the yetis were actually actually yetis ah. so that's mm-hmm. that's one of the things i was kind of thinking mulling over before you know making this recording was would the story work with the yetis work better without the intelligence if the yetis were actual creatures instead of just robots you know if you had like you know the yetis had a plan rather than the intelligence and that's what needed foiled I don't know how convincing <laughs> they would be as sort of reasoning beings with with web guns 
and things like that. Like, what voices would you give them to talk to each other and to um, to, <laughs> to to speak to prisoners and things? Yeah. I think obviously I, not a flush the toilet. Yeah, I, I mean, although they roar a bit, <laughs> I think you know the fact that they're quite you know, they, they, they don't speak and, and stuff like that. It does make them more threatening. Whereas mm-hmm. them to talk, wouldn't you, yeah, if they were the main uh, villains? Yeah, I, li- I like the fact that the Doctor has his remote control yeah. one <laughs> called Fred. And, and they've got the sphere that they've got by remote control and sort of using the robotic nature of the, of the creatures against yeah. them. So that gives the Doctor something interesting to do with Anne Travers as well. So I think that that works really well. Would you prefer that phrase if they were... Was, would they be aliens or would they be... Because um, at the end of the Abominable Summon, there is a real Yeti. So would it yeah. be like a pack of those who got together, flown over to London and yeah, made it underground? That would be the, 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 the kind of thing. It's sort of like an, just an alien race, which are Yeti, mm. and that's where we get our Yetis from is... You know, it's it's a bit like the Ice Warriors, maybe, um, in that respect, or you know, it's just a, another race of aliens who are trying to conquer the Earth or do something for some reason, and mm. you know, what happens, and then they get stopped. Um, it's just it's just on the back. It's kind of thinking, you know, yes, the Great Intelligence just doesn't really come across to me as a very effective, you know, main main villain. Um, you know, so I was just thinking, you know, would that then? Because obviously, the Yetis are great. Um, the Yetis carry the story, even right up to the last moment. You know, so if it took that intelligence out, would we still? Because you know, the Yetis are the star, really. Mm-hmm. Um, would we be happy with just Yetis being Yetis and not being, you know, controlled by an average intelligence? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know, because I suppose because I came to it from the book, which was one of the first. Um, Doctor Who books that was read to me um, so I always knew they were robots and yeah. so you just accept it They're... so yeah yeah I mean I'm, I'm happy with with them being used as um, you know a tool as it were um, it's sort of like the tech apps with the Rani or or sort of like the the Bok robots with Taron Capel you know it's it's a tool isn't it their tool to to carry out their plan so it does work in that respect. It's just, you know, just a thought I had. Um, was the quarks as well? It's it's sort of thing that that stopped the quarks really, you know, maybe taking off, other than maybe potential sort of rights issues. Um, yeah. they're not autonomous um, kind of beings like like the Daleks and the Cybermen and their own right, are they? They, um, you know, they were tools of the Dominators. Well, no, and was, was, again, you see that we don't see the tech apps come back or the Vox come back, other than Big Finish. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've only had the two, well, three, three stories featuring the Yetis so far. I think there was a, they were planning the third one until the falling out, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, the land yeah. of the McCrimmons. I know. I wish we wish we could have seen that. <laughs> mm-hmm. We might have had a third, different type of Yeti altogether like in Scotland. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. By that point, it's probably going to be the Raston Warrior Yeti all slimmed down and yeah, <laughs> skin papers. no fur, yeah, <laughs> nice haircut, yeah, nice smart. <laughs> again, it's it's all. I think the whole story again is it's about the juxtaposition, isn't it? That it's a Yeti 
which we've seen in Tibet in its natural home, and then yeah. you bring them to London and put them in the underground tunnels, and they look wrong, but they also look incredibly yeah. right in that setting. And that's what it's about, isn't it? It's that those images, when you think of the story, it's the Yeti lumbering down the tunnels relentlessly towards you with their eyes glowing, and they're coming to get you, and they're going to use their web guns, which, again, make very little sense in the general scheme of things. But who cares? Because it's a, such a brilliant it is. It's, image. It's like John Pertwee said, you know, um, the, the Yeti on the Lewin Tutenbeck, but it is the the supernatural in with the familiar. So it's the, mm. it's what's going to scare yeah. you, but it's going to scare you on your doorstep as opposed to around the world, so or on another planet or around the world. It's actually, I, I'm going to put mm-hmm. this... Front and center. It's one of the first times in the series they've done that, isn't it? Where they've actually, you know, went through a big scale sort of invasion. Of you know, everything else has been sort of futuristic or in the past, but this is like this is contemporary Earth. This is something happening right here, right now, right in front of you. Yeah, it's like putting the Daleks, isn't it, in yeah. on Westminster Bridge? It's that perfect mixture of alien and yep. now even though it's technically not That's set it. now but it's that familiar against and then the bringing unfamiliar. that right down to the now so it's like well okay so when the when the Daleks are going over Westminster Bridge you know it's set in the future you're not going to be worried about stepping out your front door and running into a Dalek whereas no okay mm-hmm. now I've got to go to work I've got to get the tube what is lurking yeah in this mm-hmm. very very familiar place Exactly. And it's one of those Doctor Who images. It's always the one that people rem- from who yeah. watched it at that time remember. The Yetis in the underground. It's like the giant maggots yeah. in the mine and the sea devils coming out of the sea. It's those do- key yeah. Doctor Who images, isn't it? I know yeah. it was one that my mum remembered watching um, when she was young and one that she remembered really, really well and really fondly. So I remember when, when we were borrowed the book from the library it was the one where she said yeah i remember re watching this one and it was really scary and the yetis were taking over the the underground and it was really good so it's just one of those yeah one of those just brilliant concepts for a doctor who story yeah. do you think they should put the yeti back for series 7b when the great intelligence returned to menace the doctor do you think they would work in the modern series that'd have been better than the whisper men <laughs> but then anything would have been better probably than the Whispermen. So the Whispermen similar in that they, they look really cool, don't they? Mm-hmm. I would have liked to have seen them alongside, because you've got the snowmen, haven't you? You've got the Whispermen. Uh, I think yeah. maybe mm-hmm. if you've seen them as you know along, alongside these other um, kind of uh, soldiers that the, the Great Intelligence has got in their arsenal a little bit. Yeah, I could see them flanking Richard E. Grant in his big hat and his big black clothes. I think that would have been quite a cool image. I think for those episodes, I don't think um, the Yeti would necessarily work. And don't forget, we've got the um, the Bells of St. John as well, which is a... Oh, yeah, yeah and they wouldn't they have fit in there. fit in that whatsoever. If you have the Yeti in um, the Snowmen, one of the things I like about the Snowmen is it's a very subtle build-up to the Great Intelligence it's one that you get as a fan um, because you kind of... <laughs> go, don't you, early on? Yeah. You, you start joining the yeah. dots of mm-hmm. GI underground and you kind of join these dots up and eventually you get there either 
sometime before just around the same time as, as the revealers. So put the Yeti into that story and that that's gone straight away. Um, the Snowmen works because it's Snowmen. I think that that story's great. I think the, obviously the Bells of St John again that wouldn't necessarily work, you know, in that no. scenario. Um, the name of the Doctor again. I can't see how Yetis would fit in in that particular story, but I do think the Yetis are ripe to make a comeback. I think there is a story to be told involving both the Yetis and, unfortunately, the average intelligence, but it's not either of those three stories. It needs to be the one that is <laughs> kind of written more around around it. So either, you know, put them back into Tibet or, you know, but we've done Tibet, we've done the underground. What do you do with them? Yeah, it's probably some more creative mind than me. What you do is take them to the 1990s and put them in a university setting with Victoria Waterfield and the return of Professor Travers, who's dead, and the Brigadier and Sarah Jane and Kate Lethbridge-Stewart for the first time and the Brigadier's um, grandson and you make downtime. Oh, no, no, you don't. <laughs> I forgot about that, you know. I'm... I'm how can you forget about that? I had it on VHS and, and not watched it since the 90s, I think. You mean you've not bought the DVD really yeah, smart? You oh, you've let us down. Straight for the memory worm after. <laughs> we were tricked. It was the intelligence all the time. <laughs> I love it, but it's awful. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave it to Mr. Chibnall or whoever else is coming in afterwards to to make that make that story because I think it's there to be told. I just don't know exactly what it is, what shape it would be. Yeah, I, I just I love them so much. I'd love to see them again. But yeah, like you say, it's got to kind of be the right setting, hasn't it? I mean, it would have to be Earthbound. I can't I can't imagine them working on a on an alien planet. I think it would have to be some sort of Earthbound setting. Future, maybe, near future. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't make sense, yeah, for the great intelligence to build robot yetis on a on another planet, does it? <laughs> <laughs> Not really. <laughs> so, one of the other bits of, of, of research I did was around, um, sort of, kind of bring me back to where we started, was to how this... Um, story how people's perceptions changed after it was discovered um because obviously it was discovered with um enemy of the world and i don't know about you guys but i certainly sat there and went oh web of fear fantastic brilliant oh i can't wait to see the web of fear and the enemy of the world yeah you know enemy of the world was very much mm-hmm. a, um a sort of like an afterthought it's um, one that no one was excited about, but then what I got a feeling of happening was once people actually watched the two, it was the enemy of the world that came out the better, that people were actually talking more about how good that was as opposed to the web of fear. So again, I did a couple of polls on Twitter. I got a bit more results on this one. So first of all, I asked people, you know, what do you think of the web of fear? You had four options. You had classic, good, average, or clunker. Um, Classic was the resounding winner with 65%. Um, then we had good on 26%. You had average at um, 
you know, 9% and thereabouts. And then because there's always one and it wasn't me this time, you've got clunker at 0.7%. <laughs> so it is, you know, a universally well-loved story. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. I then asked, you know, how has your opinion changed on this since 2013? Has it improved? Has it stayed the same? And has it worsened? Anyone want to guess what the winner was? Improved. Worsened. Stayed the same. So stayed the same. Uh, 72 okay. people responded to this one. Um, improved, got 36%. Um, stayed the same, got 44%. And then worsened, got 20%. So, you know, most people... And the feeling I got was, yeah, I knew what it was about. I liked it. You know, getting the story back didn't really add much. Obviously, some people it did, um, and some people actually didn't. When I asked the same question about Enemy of the World, though, 82% of the people that answered said it had improved. Perception stayed mm-hmm. the same, was 12%, and worsened was 6%. So there's a very noticeable um, feeling that the Enemy of the World came out of 2013 sort of the winner as it were um, and it's something I said to you the other night side sort of people thought in my opinion people thought the web of fear was a classic to start with so the only way that was going to go yeah so their opinion is going to yeah. change yeah. or the only way to go, go down classic is because it's not going to yeah. live up to the expectation whereas with of... enemy of the world people came in with thinking this is a very average story um, and were very pleasantly surprised and again with it's your received fan wisdom, Fraser, as we always go back to that before that, it was the boring one from season five because it didn't yep. have any monsters. It was the Doctor Who, the story from the monster era that had no and monsters. It, so the episodes that were remaining as well. Yeah. Episode three was really dull. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't reflective, whereas episode one of Web of Fear is, is, is a really good episode, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. kind of what your impression's largely based on in a way as well, I think. Yeah. And you're right, sir. That is like an excellent episode. I do like the the start bit with them, Julius in his in his house, I think. If you're gonna set an atmosphere, you have someone that turns the lights off by blowing out candles. That is just mm-hmm. next case. That is <laughs> that's set an atmosphere, that is and Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's, it's sort of disappointingly offensive, obviously, with the character there. Yeah, yeah. That's changed in the novelisation, yes. so mm-hmm. he's even got a completely different name, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah. So by 1976, 77, the that has mm. been readdressed and and changed. So, to Emil Silvius. So yeah, I mean, it's yeah, he's very caricatured, and it's not clever and it's not funny yeah it's, it's, but, it's yeah like I say it's a beautifully shot and everything like that yeah that that bit's pretty uncomfortable yeah. and it's it, it's quite a relief that he's not in more of the story really yeah kind of given that portrayal yeah. i think mm-hmm. yeah i mean i can remember watching that uh, the first time i saw that was the bsb doctor who weekend when they put the get the two remaining yeti episodes on on the saturday afternoon and i could just remember sitting there thinking because i hadn't seen a lot of 60s doctor who at that point because we're only just we'd only had the few that were on vhs and um the crotons which i'd seen and so and it was the first time sort of watching part one of the web of fear was the first time i thought well actually 60s doctor who is really cool isn't it and it is really good and it's really atmospheric and really well made and it was like a, almost a startling revelation to to fifteen year old me that 
60s Doctor Who was as good as 70s Doctor Who and as good as 80s Doctor Who, if not better. Yeah, absolutely. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, and, and again, I suppose bring it full circle, just so, so lucky that we've now got these to watch. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, because again, you know, the the disc, going back to the disc, it's, it's a fantastic set. I mean, if you've heard us talk about the animation and you're not really thinking that's up your street, I think, you know, don't throw the burn out with the bathwater. There's still a lot to enjoy in that in that um, that set. I think possibly the only thing that I would have liked a bit more about um, would be the discovery of the missing episodes. I think it's kind of the making of documentary touches on it towards the end slightly. Um, and I'm where I think there is a, an interview with, Philip Morris on Enemy of the World, is there? Yeah. Mm. Um, but yes. I think I would have liked a little bit more around the um, the finding of the episodes to be included in this disc. I would have liked a little bit more around the animation. I know we've got a, a snippet, but I would have liked a bit more a bit more in depth to that, you know, like 10, 15 minutes or something would have been would have been spot on. So those are the kind of only only problems I have with it. Um, the artwork is fantastic, both inside and outside. Um, mm. Picture quality, like I say, is worth it alone. Absolutely yes, stunning. stunning you know, isn't this, it? you know, is an indication of what we are going to get when they get round to doing a the nineteen sixties collection. Then we are in for a treat. Um, sound quality as well. Mm-hmm. And you've got you've yes. got the missing years yep. on Blu-ray yeah. for the third time. <laughs> I've bought that three times now. God, what is this? Made me buy the Web of Fear 13 times. and <laughs> But I love The Missing Years. It's one of the most quoted documentaries in our house <laughs> to this day. <laughs> and, yeah, I remember watching it in 1998 when it, it was first released on the Ice Warriors uh, VHS collection. And I was just sitting there with, with my boyfriend at the time and we were watching it on Christmas Day. And we were just la- in just in fits of laughter at Debbie Watling just popping up all over the place in amongst film cans, and um, just saying, uh, um, just imagining what it would be like if they'd employed Fraser Hines and Debbie Watling as the new presenters on this morning, and what a joy that would have absolutely been. And just imagining this world where they were just presenting all these high high-powered TV shows together and Debbie Watling just carping on about Hong Kong every five minutes. <laughs> but it's a joy. It's, it's sort of the first DVD extra a few years mm. before DVDs and it's one, it's a lovely, yeah. it's a lovely thing. It's great. And, and on the documentary as well, the, uh, where Fred Hines talks about the fact that nobody told him that the women of fear had been found. Uh, <laughs> He's just been uh, just, just sort of expected to turn up to the screen. <laughs> uh, yeah, and it's just such a shame that it wasn't done a bit earlier and we'd got um, Deborah yeah. Watling on there yeah. as well, really. Particularly with her dad being yeah. on that show. I think her voice is kind of missing. I know she's on the commentary for episode one, but they did for the... Um, for, yeah. for lost in time didn't they um but yeah it's such a shame she's not sort of represented on all the extras as well yeah absolutely it's uh, uh i suppose it's a thing for the for the 60s collections isn't it that uh you know the the, the sooner they get around to them the you know the more contributors uh, 
Well, absolutely. As as Fraser mentioned earlier, that um, we've got all this content from Ralph yes. Watson on this disc, and he he died just he did. a few weeks back, didn't he? Sadly. So, but we've got all of his recollections now sort of saved for prosperity yeah. on on this disc. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, well worth purchasing it. So, uh, yeah, as Fraser said, if if anybody is hesitating, um, it's uh, it's definitely well worth getting. Yeah. Yeah, I'd second that. And it'll support future releases, hopefully, as well. Which is, uh... <laughs> yeah, remember, public wants what the public gets. Yeah. Exactly. And you know what? Just watching it again, and I've watched it now twice since I've got the Blu-ray and watched it with the commentary. And you know what? It's still my favourite Troughton story. And I don't care what anyone says. It's my yeah. favourite. I know I've said a, a, a few... A few negative points about it, which is unlike me, but you know it is. Like I said, there's there's, there's so much to love in there. I think um, the the atmosphere, fantastic. The Yetis are fantastic. I think the Tardis team, you know, I'll I'll champion them because yes, the next one that comes is better, but this one is still that doesn't mean this one isn't really good. Love this Tardis team. It's it's fab. The music, the music as well. I know I've said. Yeah, it's yes. beautifully chosen. I know chosen they've got the wrong music. tune for the attack, but everything else, <laughs> everything else is is fantastic. And it's it's Douglas Campfield at his very best. You know, um, so much yeah. to enjoy in there. And you know, the the animation will improve. It will grow on us. I'm sure. Um, but I'm 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 happy with this. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see what they do next. Um, you know which um, which animation this this animation studio gets mm. to do next. Whether it is the the rumored uh, abominable snowman, perhaps that would be uh, that would be very interesting as well. Yeah, yeah, we've still got a long way to go. There is a lot there of Hartnell to do. There is, but yeah, now that there's uh, now that there's two different studios working on it, we're getting to a year. We'll um, we'll get there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And who knows? We might even find some more episodes. It's been a long. It's been a long eight years. It has. Yeah, we'll find episode three of <laughs> the Web of Fear now, <laughs> which we know exists anyway. Uh, that will come back now that it's been been wonderfully animated, and probably an episode of the Macro yep. Terror. The ones we've already done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, um, yeah. Hopefully, I mean, this is the problem. I suppose that the 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 makers of current Doctor Who have now, isn't it? That every time there's an announcement, there's a portion of fandom that thinks it's going to be a missing episode um, discovery announcement, so they're disappointed by whatever it actually is that's yeah. uh, that's announced about the uh, about the current series. Yeah, well, there's a, the, uh, yeah, never yeah. happy. So, there's that's a portion will think it's a missing episode. There's a portion will think the Ronnie's coming back. Yeah. <laughs> One day. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much, gentlemen. Uh, this is this has been a great pleasure. Uh, it was a terrific story and uh, really nice discussing it with you. Thank you too. It's been a pleasure, Mark. Thank yes, you for inviting thank you very us much. back. I've enjoyed it. Just want to let us know, uh, let our listeners know where they can find you on the internet, uh, Fraser. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Felix Fraser. Fraser spelled with a Z. Okay, and yep, you can find me on Twitter as at Cy underscore Hart. 
And more excitingly, um, you'll be able to soon listen to me and Mark and uh, many other great podcasters who you've probably heard on many a Trap One episode um, talking about Blake Seven on a new podcast called Maximum Power. Maximum Power. That's the one. And you haven't even got there yet, Mark. So <laughs> you've got that to look forward to. Um, so no, we're, we're really excited and really looking forward to all finding us and giving it a listen. If you're a fan of Blake 7, there's some great content coming up. Yeah, so look out for on the Trap 1 Twitter feed for news about that. And also the Maximum Power Twitter account, which is... Yeah, at Maximum Power Pod. Fantastic. Yeah, so definitely check out that account for news and updates. Uh, and as soon as, uh, as soon as the first episode's up, you'll be able to subscribe. Yep, and you can hear Mark's thoughts on this series that he we've made him watch for the very first time. Yeah, I'm probably the only Doctor Who fan that's never seen Blake Seven. Um, so. Yeah, that I've uh, I've watched the first series so far. We've we've got the first series worth of podcasts in the can. So yeah, it's been uh, it's been a journey. It certainly has. And there's uh, a, there's three more seasons to but, go, Mark. So, <laughs> <laughs> but an, an absolute pleasure podcasting with you and Colin and Pete and uh, and a wealth of other fantastic people. So uh, yeah, I can't wait for everyone to hear it. <laughs> And thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.